If you have your Bible, could you please open up with Luke 8? Luke 8, starting in uh, verse 26. This is our scripture reading for this morning. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into, and they begged him not to command them to depart, depart into the abyss. Easy for me to say. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let, him, let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down in the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. This is the word of the Lord this morning for us. You may be seated. Well, I want to invite you, if you... Uh, didn't get your Bible open, or if you just closed your Bible, <laughs> to open it up again to Luke chapter 8. Uh, as we look at this story, Luke is uh, one of four biographers of Jesus. Uh, Luke was a doctor, uh, and so he set out to write a very kind of orderly, scientific, thoughtful account of what actually happened, right? So we think of our modern biographers. Uh, that's really what Luke is trying to do. Uh, so Luke chapter 8, we're going to look at uh, verses 26, actually all the way through 39. Uh, so get that open in front of you if you got it. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, all of our backyards and our houses uh, were open. They were all connected. So there are like six houses right around there and then one big field off to the left. And there were several other kids my age. Uh, and so we uh, enjoyed our open backyards. Right? It was perfect for, uh, we got a trampoline, and so then all the kids would run over to the trampoline, and we would just kind of jump on that forever, uh, which as an adult just makes me queasy thinking about. Um, we play kickball and baseball, and we'd run back and forth, and it was just a great time. It was like kind of a, a perfect backyard situation for us kids, until one of my neighbors moved. And then what happened when the new neighbor moved in, one of the first things that he did was he put up a fence. Uh, and not one of those cute picket fences, like one of those stay out fences. 
Uh, one of those that are like right here, like uh, even Al Borland from Home Improvement could not have stuck his nose over that fence. It was one of those fences, and that kind of ruined our backyard because now anytime we played baseball, it always flew over into his yard, and he always seemed a little bit annoyed that we would be coming around to get our baseball. Uh, but the kicker was really this. A couple years after that, so uh, my family had a hyperactive dog. It seems to run in the family. If you have met our dog, for some reason it's a genetic trait that our families just get hyperactive dogs. But our dog was very barky. Uh, and so what would happen is when the dog would go out, the dog would bark. But my neighbor did not like this, and he decided to let us know by putting a bell on the top of his fence. And so anytime our dog would bark, he found it in himself to go outside and ring the bell. Which, if you know a dog, is only going to make the dog bark more. And this was to let us know, as the owners of the dog, that he was annoyed that our dog was barking. You see, he clearly was not interested in having any kind of cordial relationship with us. He clearly was not interested in loving our neighbor as we sought to love him. And it became really kind of confusing. How do you love someone like that? How do you love a neighbor who doesn't want you to love them? Or even more than that, how do you love a neighbor who not only doesn't want you to love them, but they are actively engaged in things that make being their neighbor very hard? Or being their neighbor very difficult. How do you love someone like that? You see, in this series, we're taking Jesus's command, his, the, his most famous command, love your neighbor as yourself. And we're saying, okay, how do you actually do that? Like if we were to describe the different types of neighbors that you live next to, what would it look like to love your neighbor in Jesus's way uh, in this particular situation? And today we're talking about loving your difficult neighbor. How do you love your difficult neighbor in the way of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by difficult, right? Because you might have something in mind when you think of difficult. I just want to give you a little bit of a, a spectrum, if you will, for how you think about loving your difficult neighbor. Because we love the idea of loving your neighbor if your neighbor is just like you, or if like your best friend buys a house right next to you. Man, that's the dream, right? But how often do you buy a house and you're like, I should have inspected the neighbors as much as I inspected the house, right? So let's just talk about it. So if we were like to kind of build a spectrum, if this is your average neighbor, right? I don't know what that looks like, right? Your average neighbor, like you don't really think too much of them. They don't really think too much of you. You have that, you know, that you get in that neighbor loop where you're just like, hey, neighbor, and that's like the extent of your relationship. One step kind of further is what I would call your awkward neighbor. Now, it's not that they're awkward or that you're awkward. It's just like, like both of you together are kind of awkward. Right, maybe last political season they had a sign in the front yard, and so you know, like, if we really get into it, like, it's going to be a little awkward. Or maybe there's some differences between you. Maybe there's a, a language barrier or a cultural barrier, right? Or maybe they're really young with kids, and you're retired, and you're like, I don't know how to interact with that. And so it's awkward. It's not bad. It's just, like, it's kind of one of those things where you wave because you have to. One step further is what I would call your avoidant neighbor. Uh, this is where anytime you are outside, they go inside. Now, or anytime that, that like, you, you want to have a connection with them, maybe you even, like, you want to love them, and so, like, you go knocking on their door, or you drop cookies off, or whatever the thing is, right? You're making efforts, and it just seems like there's, there's no one there, right? You see them, and they're cold to you. They just, like, clearly don't want a relationship with you. They're, they're your neighbor, but they... They, they don't really feel like him. Now, these are generally like, we can live with these. 
But one step further is what I would call your antagonistic neighbor. And this is my neighbor ringing the bell. So your antagonistic neighbor, like, he likes to push your buttons. He likes to kind of push the envelope a little bit. Uh, there's maybe some tension, right? He likes to kind of bring up difficult topics or, or he's just always looking to pick a fight, right? Like a tree limb falls off of your tree into his yard and it's like the worst thing that could have happened to him today, right? He's antagonistic. He's kind of just out to make your life difficult. And so this gets really difficult. How do you love him? Or how do you love her when they're like that? Now, one step further is what I would call your abusive neighbor. Now, I wrestled with this language because this language can be heavy. And so here, here's what I mean by that. I mean that they have a clear intent to do harm or to uh, engage in illicit activity. And, and, and I use that with this caveat. That's happening near you, not to you. Right? So if it's happening to you, then I think there's a whole other set of important conversations that you need to have about what it actually looks like to love your neighbor. Like we talked about last week, loving your neighbor as yourself means that you're allowed to take care of yourself. But what do you do when it's happening near you? In other words, like uh, you see the cars drive by slowly, the window roll down and someone leans in and leans out. Or you hear the fights that are going on next door. Or you hear even the gunshots what do you do with that? How do you love your neighbor when your neighbor is like that? You see, the further that we get down this spectrum, the harder and more difficult it is to really think about how do I actually do this? How do I love my actual neighbor? And, and one of the realities is that uh, like kind of when you move closer to the city, right, you oftentimes are, are more compact, right? The difficult neighbors are everywhere, right? Can we just acknowledge difficult neighbors are everywhere? But what happens is when you move into more city centers, all of a sudden everyone's a little bit closer. And so you see everyone's business a little bit more, right? So the reality is you don't have to live in Goodyear Heights to have a difficult neighbor. I wasn't living in Goodyear Heights when we had our antagonistic neighbor. Uh, but what happens when you live in closer neighborhoods like ours, if you're here in Goodyear Heights or kind of one of the Acker neighborhoods, is it becomes very much a more important issue because now it's not just a matter of ignoring. It's like this is happening outside my kitchen window. And so that's what I want to look at this morning through the life of Jesus. Jesus is our king. He is our Lord. He walked the road before us. And so he loves his difficult neighbor in this situation, right? If we did our spectrum, there's one step further, and that is your demon-possessed neighbor. And, and, and chances are your neighbor is not demon-possessed. There's a chance they might be, and we're going to talk about that. But Jesus is very intentional in his approach to this man. And in doing so, I think he shows us what it looks like to love your difficult neighbor when they're not looking for it and when they're actually a problem in a community. All right, so if you haven't opened up your Bible yet to Luke chapter 8, I want to show you five ways that Jesus loves his difficult neighbor, and you can do four of these five. All right, so one of these you're not going to be able to do. We're going to talk about that, but you can do five or four of these five things. We're going to just kind of walk through the story uh, line by line. Uh, so verse 26 says, Then they, that's Jesus and his followers, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. All right, stop there. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to do this like the whole, so if you're like, man, I got lunch. But this one is important, all right? So first way that Jesus loves his difficult neighbor. Jesus moves toward difficult people and places. 
Jesus moves toward difficult people and places. If you look at the story right before this, Jesus and his disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they crossed the sea at night, and it was a huge storm. And the very last thing that is said before this story starts is, who is this who calms the storm? Right? So lingering over the story is this question of, who is Jesus? What is he actually doing? Right? So catch what has happened. In order to get to this place, they have had to go across a stormy sea that Jesus eventually calmed. But then the language of Luke's account here it tells us it's in the Gerasenes. Uh, the Gerasenes is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So as they would say, it's on the other side of the sea, like we would say it's on the other side of the tracks. Right? It's on the other side of the sea. And not only that, it says it's opposite Galilee. Now that would have been obvious if you were reading this in the original context. You, of course, I know where that is. But Luke wants you to know this is very decidedly anti-Galilee. Galilee was Jesus' hometown. He has crossed into the Gerasenes, and the Gerasenes was outside of Israel, was outside of the Jewish people, and so he's crossed an, an ethnic line, he's crossed a social line, he's crossed a religious line in order to come into this territory. All that is loaded in what Luke says in just that one sentence. See, Jesus is very intentional about moving towards difficult people and places. Now, the reality is in our world, the kind of the larger message about what success looks like is that the more successful I get, the easier my life should be, right? That I move towards comfort and I get out of discomfort, right? So I start in a small home and I move to a little bit of a bigger home and I get more kids, right? Or I start in kind of a, a poor school district and then I eventually move out of that to get to the nice school district, right? That I move from discomfort into comfort. The narrative is that we should be moving up and to the right, out of those places towards comfort. Now, it's not wrong to have a safe home. I think it's important to have a safe home and to feel safe where you live. But the shadow side of this message actually causes us to have this idea of what success looks like that actually draws us away from the very places that Jesus would have gone. Jesus moves not towards the success and the comfort, but towards the discomfort and the things that are not always easy and the people that are not always easy to love or easy to belong to. He moves towards difficult people and places, which means that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, what is your imagination of what success looks like? Is it shaped by Jesus or is it shaped by the predominant economic culture that we live in that says more money means more comfort, bigger house, easier life? Jesus instead moves down. He moves towards. All right, thank you. Like if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't be here, right? He moves towards difficult people and places. And so if you're going to be serious about following Jesus, it's going to challenge how you think about where you live. This is why a part of our rule of life as a community is the practice of place. That we see our address. Even if you don't like where you live, your address is part of how God has placed you in a particular place for his mission. Jesus moves towards difficult people and places. He's very intentional about being here. And so following Jesus will lead you that direction. Uh, take a look at verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out onto land, there met him a man from a city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. 
When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Second thing that Jesus does to love his neighbor. Jesus sees the spiritual behind the physical. Jesus sees the spiritual behind the physical. One of the challenges of being a disciple of Jesus, a student of Jesus, meaning he's the master, I'm trying to emulate my life after him, is not just believing certain things about Jesus or even doing certain things that Jesus did, but part of it is also seeing how Jesus saw. Seeing the world how Jesus saw the world. You see, most of us are, as C.S. Lewis described, chronological snobs. What that means is we assume that because we live in 2023, we have more enlightened ideas about the world than people who lived in 33 AD, when Jesus is living. And we would say that about everything else about that world, except maybe Jesus. We'd say, well, that's Jesus. But Jesus sees the world as loaded with not just physical things, but spiritual things. That the world is full of spiritual power. And so as we seek to follow Jesus, right, thinking about the world, not just in material ways, right, we're, we're very materialistic, not in the sense that I like to buy lots of stuff, but, but in the sense that my five senses are all that there is. Right? I'm very scientific, so what I see is what I get. Input equals output. But Jesus instead says, or he sees, a spiritual reality at play in the world. And so this guy who comes to him, right, is full of demons, and yet most of his neighbors have tried to deal with the physical realities of his life. But there's a spiritual reality to what's going on here. And the early followers of Jesus believe this too. Right? So it's not just Jesus. The early followers of Jesus believe this too. And in fact, in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul is writing to an early church, and he says that our battle or our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Which means that the primary challenge of loving your difficult neighbor is not your neighbor. There's something else going on. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. There's a lot that Paul talks about there, right? And, and here's the thing. Uh, we typically have one of two... Reality. Some of us grew up in a space where this is all we talked about. Uh, and some of us grew up in a space where this was never talked about. But the reality is that Jesus and the early followers of his movement believed that there was spiritual darkness in the world. And that spiritual darkness had power, it had authority, and it worked even in some situations where you couldn't totally see it. In fact, if you read through the Bible from beginning to end, you will actually begin to see that part of how spiritual darkness manifests, and that's a really kind of, that's a loaded word too, how, how it shows up is through principalities. Uh, now, don't, if you're like, whoa, where are we going? Hold on, just, just track with me. Principalities. What I mean by that is spiritual darkness actually has geographic control. Uh, so you're reading the Old Testament, Daniel's praying, and then an angel comes to Daniel, and he says, hold on, I was, I'm sorry I'm late, I was held up by the prince of Persia. You're like, what in the world? That's a video game. But what he's saying is, he had to do some spiritual battle to get to Daniel. And here's why this is really important. All right, This is really important because when you are living on your block, or when you're walking your street, 
there are going to be maybe houses that you walk by, and you just kind of get this, like, I don't want to call it spidey sense, but you know what I mean? Right. And, and after, so after you kind of do the work of like, okay, is this just because I'm like culturally ignorant? Once you kind of work through all that, you, you can understand that there's something going on in this house on my block that affects the whole life of my block. Right? Like we had a house not too far from us for a little while that, that there was just something going on there. You couldn't really tell what was going on. You just kind of knew, and, and all the neighbors kind of knew, but you didn't really know. And then that person left, and it was like this, this weight or this darkness on the block lifted. That's not just the fact that that person is gone, but there's, there's perhaps even a spiritual darkness that, that had fallen onto our street that wanted to keep people afraid and wanted to keep people enslaved. You see, this is the reality of how Jesus views the world. This is why, if you read on later, do you ever wonder, this is a question I was asking, why did the demons have to ask Jesus' permission then, but not before? Right, like, so clearly before the story, they had come into this man, and it didn't seem like they had asked Jesus' permission, but why is it that they now have to ask permission? It is because Jesus has stepped foot into this land, he has now invaded a spiritual domain, and so there is a new sheriff in town in the Gerasenes. Amen. There's someone else in charge. Before, Jesus was in, in, in Galilee. Now he's in the Gerasenes, and so now they realize, hold on a second. Like, we're not the top dogs here anymore. We're not the ones in charge anymore. And so they have to ask permission. Why? Because God's kingdom has come into the Gerasenes. And how much more so for you? As we live on our streets and live in our blocks, like, have you ever thought that maybe your house is a foothold in the garrisons, a foothold in this community that is a space of light because you're there and because God's spirit is working in you, right? Darkness now has to ask permission. Like, this is why it's so important that we live in our neighborhoods, why we're present in our blocks, because when we are there, God's kingdom is advancing into our community. And so this is way more than just, I moved here because I like this house. Jesus sees the spiritual realities behind the physical. Right? And, and let me just, just kind of as a, as a warning, as a pastor, as your pastor, right? Here's the thing. Uh, I think this should cause you to take a, a pause before you start dabbling in stuff of darkness. Right? Before you start dabbling in tarot cards, before you start dabbling in the occult, right? Like Jesus said, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Which means that at first it's going to look fun, or convenient, or it's going to offer you something that you're looking for. But then Jesus also said, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? So he wants to lure you in so that you are then enslaved, and he's just going to wreck your life. And so if you're dabbling in that stuff, like you are moving away from Jesus. Amen. And you might think, oh, it's just cards, or it's just, it's just uh, whatever. But Jesus sees the power of that spirituality behind what looks like it's just physical. Right? So Jesus sees that. And we should too. Verse 30. Jesus then asked him, what, oh sorry, actually pick up at verse 29. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert, or actually the language is into isolation. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons have entered him. Third way Jesus loves his difficult neighbor. Jesus cares for the person before the problem. Jesus cares for the person before 
the problem. You see, here's the thing. Uh, Luke tells us all the lengths that people went to try to control this guy. Right, to try to keep him in chains, to, to, to kind of keep him out on the outside. He was seen as a problem in this community. So much so that it says that it drove him into the desert. The language there is into isolation, into the wilderness. He was alone. And what is the first thing that Jesus says to him? What's your name? When do you think the last time was someone asked him that question? When was the last time someone said, what's your name? Like, what's your story? Like, how did you get here? You see, before Jesus is dealing with him as a problem, he's dealing with him as a person. Yes, a difficult person. Yes, there's a lot happening in his life. But Jesus says, what's your name? You see, so often when it comes to our difficult neighbors, we just start thinking about all the problems they create all the issues that it causes on, uh, in, your, in, your, in your life or on your block. And, and pretty soon, before you know it, we're just thinking about them as a problem. But Jesus starts with him as a person. And here's the thing. When you begin to see as Jesus sees, and you begin to believe, as Ephesians 6 says, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, it helps you see your neighbor as enslaved as addicted, as stuck in darkness. Now, here's the thing. That does not absolve them from decisions that they are making, but it also helps you see right, that there is something bigger going on, that they are themselves victims of something going on, that they are themselves trapped in darkness, and what they need is to be set free. Even though they are the problem, even though they're causing all kinds of issues, Jesus cares for them as a person. So part of loving your neighbor, your difficult neighbor in the way of Jesus, is fighting to see them as people. Say, what is your name? When everything around us, our neighbors, our, our, our block watch, wants to see them as a problem. Jesus cares for him as a person. Verse 31. And they begged him, this is the demons, begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. All right, just, just a, a note here, right? So these demons leave this man, and they go to the pigs, and the pigs are immediately destroyed. That tells you something about how hard this guy had been fighting. Because right? all these were in him, and he had been fighting, and he hadn't destroyed himself yet. He hadn't thrown himself off the cliff. But when these demons enter uh, 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 an animal that has less mental, spiritual power, right, they're destroyed. So this guy had been wrestling. He'd been struggling. All right, that's for free. 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city, in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, that's discipleship language, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Fourth way that Jesus loves his neighbor. Jesus sets people free. Amen. Jesus sets people free, right? Praise God. He set you free. Jesus sets people free. This is the only one that you cannot do on your own. All the other ones you can do, you can say, I'm going to be intentional about seeing my neighbor as a person, not a problem. But only Jesus sets people free. 
right? And if you look earlier, when Luke describes all the strategies that people had put in place to try to control this guy, to try to contain his behavior, to try to make sure that he is okay, right? Human strategy fails to overcome spiritual darkness, right? He had been, uh, like, like, we could think about this in terms of like, uh, well, you just need to change your behavior, right? Oftentimes we think, okay, behavior modification, or, or if you could just, just, just change this aspect about your life. Or, or if you could just kind of try to be a little bit of a nicer neighbor, right? We tend to think of our neighbor and say, what strategy can I put in place? What policy can I put in place in order to control this guy's behavior to make him a nicer neighbor? But that's not going to set him free. Only Jesus sets people free. Amen. A couple months ago, I was at our local ward meeting. Uh, and the new Akron chief of police was there. Uh, and he was kind of giving an update on just the, the gun violence in our city. Uh, he was talking about the policies and the, the, the practices, the things that they were trying to put in place uh, within the police department and city government to try to uh, curb gun violence. Uh, and he said, I, I've shared this before, but he said this, he said, uh, but if anyone knows how to change human hearts, let me know. You see, policies and procedures, they have their place. But when it comes to being truly set free from the power of sin and darkness, only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. That Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he was taking on the power of sin and darkness and defeating it. Paul would say he disarmed the powers of darkness when he died on the cross for our sins. And so when you think about loving your neighbor, when you think about caring for your neighbor, and holding out hope for your neighbor. Are you doing it in your power or in Jesus' power? See, so often we come in, we rely on my own strategy, my own strength. I, I, I think about this when I'm trying to like make connections with my neighbor. I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to say? What question can I ask? Right, which of the blessed actions can I take to connect with them, right? And oftentimes we come into that and it's all about my strategy and all about my plan and all about my power, but that is going to be powerless to truly set people free. Because when Jesus shows up, darkness has to ask permission to be destroyed. Think about that. That's the power of Jesus over darkness. And so when you love your neighbor, are you relying on your power? Or are you relying on the power of Jesus? Now, you might ask, how do you do that? In Ephesians 6, right after he talks about powers and spiritual darkness, he describes what he calls the armor of God. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably saw a lovely poster of the armor of God. But if you read through that, he's saying, how do we defend against the, the powers of darkness that want to come against us? And he talks about like the breastplate and the, the helmet and the shoes that are ready to share the gospel. There's only one piece of that equipment that is offensive. In other words, there's only one thing that he describes that actually would move forward in a battle. And you know what it is? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In other words, to truly advance into darkness, to truly love your difficult neighbor, right, is not just a matter of what words can I say, but what words has God said? And how is the Spirit going to change their hearts and move their minds as they understand the good news of Jesus to break strongholds and to set them free because of what Jesus has done? But the very next thing that Paul says is, he says, be prayerful continuously. In other words, that how we wield this, how we move forward into places of darkness, 
is through the spirit, the word of God in prayer. And so before you cross the street to talk to your neighbor, whether that's a, a nice friendly conversation or one of those frank conversations we talked about last week, are you prayerful? Are you saying, how can I, how can I actually bring my neighbor in contact with scripture? Because this is where the power lies. This is how people discover what Jesus has done for them. There's a direct connection between the word of God, prayer and the spirit to move forward in changing the hearts of people. So Jesus sets people free, which means that if you're here and you haven't been set free from Jesus, behavior modification will not work. You can try to change your habits. You can try to change your, your behaviors. You can try to go to recovery. Only Jesus will set you free. And only by trusting in him and what he did on the cross for you will you actually be free. So don't be confused by that. Lastly, last way that Jesus loves his neighbor. Look at verse 30, uh, 36. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, that's Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Last way that Jesus loves his difficult neighbor. Jesus acknowledges the necessity of boundaries. He acknowledges the necessity of boundaries. Here's the interesting thing that's happening here. Uh, so the people from the city ask Jesus to leave. And what does Jesus do? He leaves. Right, when Jesus told his disciples, when he sent them out to tell people about him, he said, go into the towns and villages, tell them about me, and if anyone receives you, stay with them and tell them about me. But if they reject you, if they say no to you, they're rejecting me, and so what you need to do, you need to brush your shoes off, brush the dirt off. You're like, what in the world? I can dirt my shoes all day. What does that mean? That means don't carry it with you. You see, the reality is Jesus said they will reject you because they rejected me. And so part of the tension of loving your neighbor is acknowledging and accepting that not everyone on your block is going to be open to you. Like a couple months ago, we gave out those, those nice pretty neighborhood block magnets where you could like fill in the squares right around your house. Uh, if yours is like mine, you've got a couple. And then there's some that are just like, I have no idea. Every effort that I have made, like it doesn't work. The reality is not everyone is going to accept you. Not everyone is going to be open to your efforts to love them or to hearing about Jesus. And Jesus does not seem bothered about that in this scenario. He says, okay. Why? Because there's more going on behind the scenes. Right? There's more that's happening that you can't necessarily see. And so your neighbor might not be open to you, but that doesn't mean that Jesus has given up on them. That doesn't mean that they're done. It just might mean that you might not be the effective person to reach them. And so if you're loving your neighbor and loving your neighborhood and trying to connect to your neighbors and there's just that house or that person that try all you can, right? they want nothing to do with you. Right? Or maybe they're really in that kind of that, that far left difficult space. Right? It's okay to place boundaries there. To say, you know what? I'm gonna love you, but it also means, it doesn't have to mean that you have a key to my house doesn't have to mean that I'm always available to you. Jesus has boundaries. And we see that in, in verse 38. 
So the city begs him to leave. The man begs Jesus to go with him. And what does Jesus say? He says no. And you think, why? Why say no to this guy? Think about it. If you're a traveling preacher and you can have this guy, we don't know what his actual name is. It's not Legion anymore. You can have this guy say, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. How effective of a, of a, a, a voice would that be in your campaign? But Jesus says no to him. Instead, he sends him. You see, the reality is you cannot have a close relationship with everybody. Right? We would love to think that like all the houses on your street would all come to know Jesus and then you all kind of exist in like this holy commune, right? Where everyone has a key to everyone's borrowing sugar from everyone. Like, like, but Jesus actually sees that it is more important that he sends this guy away so that he can preach the gospel than that he keep him in his group. And I think this should like challenge our imagination of like the mission of Jesus and the purpose of the church. Right? Like the, the, the end goal of the church is not necessarily that we fill a room full of people, but that people are finding Jesus and telling other people about Jesus. That's the mission of the church. And the church is here to help make that happen and to teach and to equip and to, and to send us out this week to tell people about Jesus. And it could be that the most effective person in reaching your neighbor is not you. But it could be that it is the person that you are investing in right now. See, oftentimes we, we just think very much about me when it comes to reaching people. Say, I need to reach people. But what if you reached one person and that person reached everyone? Right? Like the most effective voice to reaching Goodyear Heights might be the person who right now is 16, about ready to go to East High School, and they hear about Jesus and in a few years of discipleship and understanding who Jesus is, they can communicate the gospel of Jesus more effectively than, than I can because I moved here. All right, so this should challenge the way that we think about this. That, that's not just about me. It's about how can I invest in someone and share the good news of Jesus with someone and they might be the people that Jesus used to reach a whole community. But Jesus acknowledges the necessity of boundaries. If he had said yes and that guy had come with him, no one else in the garrisons would have heard about him. But because he says no, he sends them out. It actually has an exponential effect on the mission of Jesus. And so it is okay to have boundaries. It is okay to say yes, to choose to say yes, as we talked about last week, and also to choose to say no. To say, this is what I can do right now. And this is what I can do. I have to love myself while I also love my neighbor. And if you want to dig into that more, we talked about that all last week. How do I love myself? while I love my neighbor. And so it's okay to say, this is what I can do. And I'm going to do that, but there's a whole lot more that I can't do that I'm going to trust Jesus to do. And he will do it. Because he loves your neighbor more than you do. And he is more powerful than you are. And so he's going to do what he wants to do. And so we come to the end of the story and, and, and here's the twist. Here's the twist on this whole story. The beginning of the story, who is the difficult neighbor? It was the demon-possessed guy. At the end of the story, who's the difficult neighbor? It's the nice, put-together, stable, living-in-the-community people who say, I don't need Jesus. You see, all the while, as we've been talking about this, uh, you probably have been thinking about your difficult neighbor. 
But you ever consider that maybe you're the difficult neighbor? You see, in, in the way of Jesus, the truly difficult people are not the ones whose lives are falling apart. It's not the one who, 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 who like this guy, is oppressed and struggling. The truly difficult people are the ones who are generally nice, generally well put together, generally accepted by the culture or the neighborhood around them. Because when Jesus offers them discipleship, they say, no thanks, I've got everything together. And so which one are you? You see, in the way of Jesus, the difficult neighbor, or as Jesus said, tax collectors and sinners are going to go before you into the kingdom of heaven. Why? This guy knows full well that when Jesus offers him healing, he needs it right then. But when Jesus offers that same healing or when that healing is presented to people who have their lives together, they say, no, thanks, Jesus, I am good. And so which one are you? Are you the one who can say, you know what? I need Jesus. And everything else, even the good stuff, the good standing that I have on my block, the good behavior that I have, I will throw that all away if it means that I can sit at the feet of Jesus. See, the reality is the difficult neighbor on your block might not be who you think it is. And it might even be you. Jesus, as we think about this reality, God, in, in this room here, the ones who are here who think they have it all together, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's you sitting there this morning. You think you have it all together and you're here to learn how do I love my difficult neighbor, but you have never been set free from Jesus, by Jesus. Maybe today you need to say, you know what? I have been the difficult neighbor. I have been trusting in my righteousness. I have been trusting in my, my generally well put togetherness. And I need to let that go so that I can cling to only Jesus. See, he said, Jesus said he came to save sinners. And so what is required is that you just say, you know what, that's me. I'm in chains. I'm stuck. Because the greatest slavery is not even knowing that you're enslaved. Maybe today you need to say, Jesus, I need you. I leave everything else beside and I trust you. That you alone are my hope. Maybe for you today, that's the beginning of your journey following Jesus. It's the moment that you stop being the difficult neighbor. Maybe for you this morning, you've been looking at your neighbor. We've been talking about a difficult neighbor. And you've been thinking about them. Maybe you've just seen a problem or you've seen an issue. Maybe this morning, Jesus, you need to just show us how we have been looking at our neighbors all wrong. Help us to see them as you see them. And give us the wisdom and the humility to follow you. As we seek to love them like you love this man here. God, would you turn hearts and lives around so this neighborhood and every neighbor around here is full of stories just like this guy who are set free and praising you. Thank you for doing that for us. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.